text of this sermon is from the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now read with me, follow with me as I begin at verse 13 of the 12th chapter of Luke. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, my brother, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come, Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Who's going to get what you're leaving behind? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You may remember uh, Norman Rockwell's art. If you are as old as I and um, are nostalgic, you love that art of Norman Rockwell. He was the guy whose drawings has adorned many a Saturday evening post. And one of his more famous drawings was of the woman who was witnessing the weighing in of her Thanksgiving turkey. There is the butcher with his ample stomach, and there is the turkey secure in the scales, and there is the little lady watching the proceedings. And as you looked at that picture, you just got a feeling that something was going on there. They were up to something. And as you looked a little more closely, you discovered what it was. The butcher was pressing down on the scales with his thumb, and the woman was pressing up on the scales with her forefinger, a study of thumbs and forefingers. Now, I know that that does not apply to any of you here. None of you would ever do anything like that. And I know there are not many thieves in this congregation this morning. There are a few embezzlers here, I imagine, but their numbers are small. And so you probably are thinking to yourself, now if he's going to talk this morning about thievery or theft, he's shooting at somebody else. But if you look at that picture a little more closely, it it isn't hard to imagine that that man could be the leading citizen of the community. And it's not hard to imagine that that woman could be president of the women's auxiliary and yet they thought nothing of the loss of integrity in order to get a few more pennies in one case and save a few more pennies in another case. 
I'm reminded of the woman who said to her husband one night, Honey, I just discovered that the maid has taken two of our best towels and he laid down his paper and snorted. What's this world coming to? Well, some people are like that. Which two did she get? You know those two we got out of that hotel in New York? <laughs> and how about the woman who sat down on the bus with her friend and remembered that she'd not given the dime to the driver. Somehow she'd gotten past. And so she said to her friend, I've got to go back and give the dime. I failed to do that. She said, don't worry about it. They're not going to miss a dime. They'll never even miss it. Or she said, I've always believed that honesty is the best policy. I've got to go back. And so she laboriously made her way back up the bus aisle, gave the man her dime, came back aglow and said, See, I told you honesty is the best policy. I gave him a quarter and he gave me change for 50 cents. <laughs> there are a lot of ways, to a lot of subtle ways to break the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal, art there. But I'm not so much concerned this morning about your theft of things. I am greatly concerned this morning about things robbing you. Our parable, our story this morning is the story of a great theft. But the man in this text was not the thief. He came by his possessions honestly. Rather than being the thief of the text, this man was the victim of the theft. And I want you to study the parable with me this morning because it is the tragic story of a man being robbed by things. Don't let things rob you of your concern for others. Things have a way of doing that, don't they? Things have a way of pressing out of our lives the people in our lives. It's amazing this paradoxical question that is asked in our text. When it came to the end of this man's life, the question was asked, now who's going to get what you're leaving behind? For the things of this man's life had become so important that they crowded to the circumference the people in his life. Don't let things rob you of your concern for others. The Bible constantly warns against that. Amos talked about the day when men lived in their summer houses and their winter houses and they lay on beds of ivory and drank wine out of abundant bowls and they were so wealthy that they hired entertainers to please them and they at the same time were eating the best lambs of the flock and eating the best stock of the herd and they were sending out their slaves to rob the poor and add to their accumulations. Those who had much, rather than using what they had for the betterment of those who had not, robbed those who had not and added to their accumulations. And Isaiah picked up on the theme and he warned against adding houses to houses and land to land and building up huge monopolies so that man would not have the right to own personal property. And there are multitudes of scriptures that protect the poor. 
Every seventh year, all debts were canceled in the Old Testament age, and slaves of six years were set free. And every 50th year, the land was returned to its original owner. And if you owed me money and you were made poor because of that, I couldn't charge you interest. And if you gave me your cloak in pledge of a debt, I had to give it back before sundown. And God said, if you oppress or vex the stranger, I will hear their cries if you offend the fatherless and the widow. Now, I know that our culture and our society is a great deal different than then. And I know that the economic laws back then were very elementary and fundamental, but the principle still remains. People are more important than things. I believe in the personal right of everybody to own property. And I believe in a system that emphasizes work and personal initiative. Now, capitalism is not the best, is not perfect, but it is the best thing we have available. I believe that everybody has the right to own personal property, and I believe in the initiative of hard work, but I believe also that it is fundamentally Christian to help the poor. And I believe that it is fundamentally Christian for the haves to meet the needs of the have-nots. What did the New Testament say about it? John said, if you see and you have, you have the necessities and the bare essentials of daily life and you see your brother destitute and in need and you are not moved to help him, how can you say that the love of God is in you? There was an experience in the life of Jesus that has moved me from my childhood. It was the healing of the demoniac in Gadara. You know the story. He came there, found this man, wild man, dwelling in the caves. And in order for that man to see the process of his healing, Jesus cast out his demons into a herd of swine and they went over the cliff into the lake. And the owners of the swine came out and they saw this wild man sitting peacefully talking to Jesus and they saw their swine floating in the lake. They weren't too pleased with all that floating pork. Now they didn't mind the miracle, but they said in essence, people are important to you, things are important to us. And they made two decisions that day. You know the story. They decided first of all that things are more important than people and they decided that since Jesus might be a threat to their things, that they would ask him to leave. Now, scholars will debate forever what went on on that hill in Gadara, but one thing we are absolutely certain of, that when a society puts its premium on things, it'll always make crazy people. Now, you may be saying, I don't have any problem with this. Don't you really? How much time did you spend this week watching television as compared to spending it with people? 
How much money do you spend, will you spend this year on machines that will make life luxurious and convenient as compared to how much money you'll pour into ministry? If the average Southern Baptist spends 22 cents a day on dog food, one can of cheap dog food, he will have spent 94 times as much on a thing than on missions. It seems to me that we do have a problem with it, doesn't it to you? A friend of mine told about seeing a documentary of the starving in Southeast Asia. He said one of the most profound things that's ever happened to me happened while I was watching that film. He said, I saw little starving children and they flashed to a commercial and this was what the commercial was. A big, red, shiny, vigorous dog running across a pasture, vigorous and healthy and strong to a bowl of gravy train, big, red, juicy chunks of rich red meat and that red flashy vigorous dog was gulping that bowl of big red juicy chunks and he said as I looked at that thing he said my God that's what's happened to us things have become more of a concern to us than people and you say I don't think I have a problem with this, but maybe I do. How can I know? Let me give you a test. Three questions. What do you have time for? I mean, what do you have time for? Second question. How do you spend your money? Question three. What do you allow to interrupt you? Don't let things rob you of your concern for others. Don't let things rob you of personhood. Somebody said that a man becomes like the God he worships. You know the mental image I get every time I read this familiar parable? I get the mental image of a squirrel hurrying and scurrying while he hoards up nuts for the winter. As a matter of fact, it is intriguing that the word that's used here for fool comes from a root word that means beast. So that things had robbed him of personhood. He ceased being a person and became a thing. And the pronoun is changed from personal masculine to neuter. Now, I think it's important that we point out right at this stage of the sermon that Jesus does not con condemn possessions. His friends were not paupers. His shining hero was the Good Samaritan who had enough possessions that he could put a man up in a motel or hotel indefinitely and enough credit to back it up. And, he, and the homes where he stayed of Mary and Martha were certainly not slums. 
and Levi and Zacchaeus, two of his followers, were extremely wealthy, and the Roman officials that he said had more faith than anybody he'd ever seen in Israel had authority, possessions, and wealth. Jesus did not condemn things. But he does warn us to handle them carefully or they will decay in our hands and rob us of personhood. It seems that the richer this man became materially, the poorer he became intellectually and spiritually. He probably was, he may have been married, but he probably had a problem loving his wife. He may have had children, but most likely he didn't have time for them. He may have had the greatest books on the shelves, but never read them. And he may have had access to the world's greatest music, but didn't listen. Things had robbed him of personhood. And there is the parable of the rocking horse winner. This is the parable. There was a little boy growing up in a home in London. He listened to his parents every day say, we don't have enough money. If we just had a little more money, we could be happy. If we just had a little more, we could make ends meet. He heard that every day, and he was troubled by it. One day his father said, I'm going out and take what money I have and I'm going to bet it on the horse races and if we hit it, we'll be rich. If we don't, what do we have to lose? He missed. And one day the little boy was riding on his rocking horse and the name of the winner of the Daily Double, the horse race, came to his mind. Just popped there. And so he got a friend, a man, to go out and bet his money on this horse and won. And he sent the money anonymously to his parents and they bought some things, but it wasn't enough. The next day he was rocking and the name came of that day's race, the winner. He did the same thing, same thing happened. He sent the money anonymously to his parents. They bought things wasn't enough. And every day that same thing was reproduced, but in order to get the name, every day he had to rock just a little bit faster, just a little bit faster. Today he had to rock a little faster to get the name. Tomorrow he had to rock a little bit faster to get the name. And finally one day he had to work at it so hard it killed him. Now you know the moral of that story. I'll not have to tell it to you, but let me just come at it from a different angle. We work so hard and we ride so fast that it has killed some of us intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. We've been robbed of personhood by things. Don't let things, number three, rob you of your vital commitment to God. Did you notice how this thing began to turn? He began to say, my barns and my crops and I. He began to play God. 
he began to express, or it seems that he thought that he was responsible for the rising and the setting of the sun, that he was responsible for the fertility of the soil, that he controlled the days, the sun and the days, that he regulated the natural processes that bring dew and rain. Unconsciously he sensed that he was the creator and not the creature. Things have a subtle way of robbing us of our commitment to God, don't they? Like the man who came to his pastor and said, I want you to pray with me about my commitment to tithe. I want to make a pledge to tithe. They got on their knees, they did. When they made that pledge, that man was making a dollar a day. God blessed him. May or may not been because he tithed, but he blessed him. He soon was making $10 a day. He was soon making $100 a day. And he was soon making $1,000 a day. And when he reached that pinnacle economically, could no longer afford to tithe, he had his money in circulation, he came to his pastor and said, I can no longer follow through on that commitment. Can we pray and get released from the pledge? The pastor said, I don't think that would be possible, but this is what we'll do. We'll get down and ask God to shrink your income to a point where you can tithe again. Things have a way of robbing us of our commitment to God. Would you listen carefully? Why would we need to depend on God with what we have? Why would a, why would a man come of age who can stretch back the horizons of space? Why would he need God? We can be born without him. We can live without him. We can be educated without him. We can work without him. We can solve our problems, emotional and otherwise, without him. We can die without him. Who needs him? For with the advancement of the secular age, we can create what we want with our own hands. And so we've come with a strange parody of the 23rd Psalm. Science is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down on foam rubber mattresses. He leads me beside the six-lane highways. He rejuvenateth my thyroid glands. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the Iron Curtain, I will fear no communist, for thou art with me, thy radar screen, and thy nuclear bomb, they comfort me. Thou preparest a banquet in the presence of the world's billion hungry people. Thou anointest my head with home permanence. My beer glass foameth over. Surely prosperity and pleasure shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in Shangri-La forever. Who needs God? 
And I want you to know, as you already know it, that because of that attitude, things have robbed us of our dependence and our commitment to him. And we're reaping the consequences of it today. For our material and scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. And we have guided missiles and misguided men and our lives have been buried in the avalanche of our livelihood and the means of our life and living have outdistanced the ends for which we are living and there'll not be peace in this generation until we recognize that a man's life does not consist in things but in his relationship to God. Amen? Finally, don't let things rob you of your hope of heaven. Now, the tragedy of this story was not that this man died in the peak of his production. Now, that's what a lot of times we'll say. Here's a man at the pinnacle of his life just producing in every way, and he dies. What a tragedy. The tragedy is not that this man died in the pinnacle, in the zenith of his productivity. Jesus did that. The man who had got the most out of life got little of it. That's not the tragedy. The tragedy is that this man died in the zenith of his production without it having anywhere to go. The tragedy is that this man died having allowed things to rob him of heaven. That's the real tragedy. The real tragedy is this morning that a man will sell his soul for the abundance of things. That's the real tragedy. The story that I'm through. A king was sad, and so he sent all over the world to find the court justice, the funniest man, the biggest fool. He had them in his present performing with their jests and their jokes, and he found the world's biggest fool. He crowned him, put a scepter in his hand, and said, wherever you go in this world, you will be known as the world's biggest fool. The king was dying. He wanted someone to make him happy. It had been years since he'd crowned the greatest fool. He didn't even know where he was any longer. So he sent out runners to find him. They found him, brought him in to the chamber where he was on his deathbed, looked at the jester and said, the biggest fool in all the world, you've come back. Now make me happy, for I'm dying. The jester said, Why are you so sad? Every man dies. I am sad, he said, because I'm dying without hope. And the jester took the crown off his head and placed it on the head of the dying man, the dying king. And in his feeble hand, he thrust the scepter and said, I no longer am the world's biggest fool. 
You are the world's biggest fool because you die without hope of heaven. The greatest tragedy this morning is for a man to leave this place for any reason without hope of heaven. Now, how does that come? How is that possible? It's possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what he said in the text. And so my plea for you today is this. If you are one of us who says and must say in honesty, things have robbed me, then you are invited to respond. If you are here this morning without Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven that he gives, we invite you to come professing faith in him, trusting him, accepting him as your Savior. And we invite you to do it now and publicly after we pray. Father, I thank you that your word has spoken to us and we are convinced and convicted that things have become more important than people, that things have robbed us of what in life is really valuable, things have taken from us our vital commitment to God. We're sorry, and we repent. And I pray that publicly we'll step forward, Father, in courage, in response to your call to our life today. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now, in a spirit of prayer, we'll stand and we'll invite you to come. On the first stanza, you just come right at the first.